Conrad, I want you to think back 70 years <laughs> when you were a little boy. And what did you want to be when you were all grown up? You mean at the little boy stage? See, I've got these teenagers right now who are very much contemplating this in a pragmatic way, which I appreciate. I don't think I really had a good feel. I remember my career paths were somewhere between veterinarian and professional jazz musician. Professional jazz musician. That was, you know, that was on the path. Oh, I also, I also thought, you know, professional rugby player was also a possibility in the United States, which just goes to show how naive I was. But I do remember playing in the jazz band at college, and I took music theory, and I played in the jazz band. And in the first three weeks, it dawned on me just how unmusical and horrendously poor my path to becoming a professional musician was. What was your instrument of choice? I played the saxophone. And and when I was 17, in my mind, I was amazing. And when I was 18, I learned the reality that I was horrendous, right? Like just complete lack of talent. Well, you will definitely be playing some saxophone here on Lunch Hour Legal Market. Oh, no, that, that, that's oh, I've got it sitting up guaranteed. in the garage. Okay, back at you. What did you want to do? Gosh, I don't know. I I didn't really, I think my problem is I never really knew. I mean, sometimes I, as an entrepreneur, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But as far back as I can remember, like taking it seriously, so this was when, like a little kid, this is probably like more high school. I was super technical. I mean, I was started out, I was going to be a computer science major and be a coder, but that was not as cool then in the mid 90s mm. as it is now. And yeah, so, talk about um, missing a wave. Right. By just, just a couple of years. <laughs> I remember when they came to, they actually came to a lecture in one of my classes and they were talking about um, Java. Java was like the brand new programming language. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine what could have been. Anyway. What else are we talking about? I'm glad you didn't do that because otherwise you and I would not be sitting here recording for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. We are as usual, going to hit the news. Great news, and we're going to parlay one of those news items into our first really, really hyper-tactical segment on content strategy, deleting content, which is heavily in the news right now from an SEO perspective. And then we're going to go back and do round three of drafting our dream marketing team. Money makes the world go round. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, teaching you how to promote, market, and make fat stacks for your legal practice, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. We're here twice a month giving you the best tactical tips for marketing your law firm and having a little bit of fun while we're doing it. We're going to have a lot of fun today. We had a lot of fun last episode. We have got some really, really good stories to talk about. Very topical, very tactical. But first, the news. All right. So in the SEO news nerdy world, there's a lot of conversation going on based on an article on The Verge. We'll make sure you get uh, access to that. But it is talking about an internal memo at CNET. And fortunately, we have that memo, but it is about reducing the page count as an SEO tactic. And I'm going to read some of this for you. This is internal to CNET. 
Pruning content sends a signal to Google that says CNET is fresh, relevant, and worthy of being placed higher than our competitors in search results. Now, this came out almost scandalously. The response from Google was very strong and very negative. Both John Muller and Danny Sullivan weighed in. I will, I'm going to read directly from John because it's very strong. I strongly disagree that old news articles are per se irrelevant. In my opinion, deleting old news content, original reporting is a terrible idea. And Danny weighed in the following day. This has been a most excellent week on the interwebs. Don't delete old content because you think it'll make your site seem fresh to Google. It won't. Just don't. Don't. Please don't. So they're saying no. So don't do that. Unless you listen to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. So stay tuned for our first segment when Guy and I go deep onto content strategy and how to deal with legacy content. Next, also kind of sensational, the ABA pulls an op-ed about legal, about not legal reform, about reforming the approach of business and lawyer reforms. Guy, you're closer to the ABA than I am. Give me the skinny. What happened here? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, try to give it the objective facts. And I would suggest if you're interested in learning more about what happened, head over to uh, Bob Ambrosi's Law Next blog. He covers this very well. But the headline here is, Citing Political Challenges, ABA Innovation Center cancels op-ed advocating regular reform. And then Bob actually has the actual piece that didn't get published. So why should lawyers care about this? One, the essence of the op-ed, in my view, in my opinion, is that we need regulatory reform in order to address the future of delivery of legal services. The tension here is, is lawyers are concerned that opening up the otherwise limited ways to deliver legal services as a lawyer, it's going to hurt the business of law, right? It's going to hurt the profession. I think there's some other valid criticisms. But to pull an op-ed that's just talking about this and then, you know, lawyers that are resistant to this, I mean, how many lawyers can you name off the top of your head that are pushing the boundaries on regulation in order to deliver legal services in a new way. And so my view is, is that we should be embracing this change. You know, again, the market goes around the profession anyway. And so if you're worried about legal zoom, right, as lawyers have been, look, people find a way. That's what the internet does, democratizes information. And so if you want to be part of the conversation, I would say, hey, get to know what the regulatory landscape looks like and some of the ways that you might be able to deliver legal services. So that was a lot longer than a news segment. That was news and a little bit of sideline gee opinion, which is that always... That was a bit of gee opinion, so... Always, I love how you, you started with saying, I'm going to be objective, and then you just blew it really quickly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's how you knew I wasn't going to do I it. I knew. I just let you go. I, I knew exactly what was going to happen. Anyway, check out the story. Decide for yourself. Also, Guy, your friends over at Lawmatics. We did a segment not that long ago on what we called funnel velocity, which is the speed through which prospective clients pass through your sales funnel. And we tied that to the success of intake efforts. Lawmatics just released data and information and the ability to track speed. Guy, I know you're closer to Mr. Spiegel than I am. Can you tell us what Lawmatics has done? 
Yeah, so I would love to think that the product team over at Law Maddox listens to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing and said, aha, sales velocity, we need to add that, but I doubt that that is the case. But they, uh, in there, you can check it out, we'll put a link, but in their um, July 2023 feature release, real-time sales cycle duration metrics. So days to close, you can actually see the, exactly the metric that Conrad and I were talking about in that uh, episode. And, you know, this, <laughs> we should probably disclose that Lawmatics is a sponsor and I am affiliated with Lawmatics. But this really wasn't intended to be an ad. It's just, it was truly serendipitous that we were just having this conversation and they added it as a feature in their system. So, and if you would like to raise more suspicions that we are being completely objective and not glorifying our advertisers, next news item brought to you (laughs) by CallRail. Guy, what's going on over at our great friends at CallRail? Pure coincidence. (laughs) CallRail announced their CallRail Labs. And if you're a CallRail customer, well, even if you're not, check out CallRail. But if you're a CallRail customer, you should definitely check out what's going on in labs because they're adding all sorts of cool stuff. It's I think it's essentially like their, you know, their beta for their Project X stuff that might not be rolled out yet. So there's a bunch in here that are probably relevant to your practice. Know which callers ask for appointments, spot and prioritize repeat callers. There's all sorts they're of cool stuff. Doing sentiment analysis. Like there's a sentiment lot of really analysis. good stuff coming out of call. And again, this was not planned. There is a reason, though, that we, for the listeners, we have really carefully selected the advertisers that we work with because we stand behind it. And I, and I want this show to be genuine like that. And that's why you'll see us talking about the things that they're doing, because we believe in both of these companies. All right. Now, no one believes you. Enough, you. <laughs> I, I know it just sounds like such horseshit, but it's not. I know. It's not, it's true. It's true. When we come back after our break from some of our amazing sponsors, we're going to do a segment on content deletion and why Google got so jacked up about the suggestions or or the fact that CNET was deliberately pruning content from their sites. When we come back. Smart firms use CallRail to track where every lead comes from. PPC, LSA, organic search, or even offline ads. CallRail tells you which channels drive your best leads. CallRail even integrates with your favorite CRM or practice management tools to help manage your leads and see the ROI on your marketing investments. Know exactly which marketing tools work. Plans start at 45 bucks a month. We recommend CallRail to every single one of our clients. Go to callrail.com slash lunch hour now and try it for free. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. All right, Guy, we started with the news item about CNET deliberately pruning thousands of articles to improve their SEO. Now, 
I think you and I have talked about this for a very, very long time. Google had a really strong backlash against this concept. But I believe that content strategy needs to include how you deal with legacy content. And I've also found, and I'm sure your experience is no different, especially the PI people, you have too much content, right? There's not a paucity of legal content out there. And so, Guy, I'm wondering your knee-jerk reaction to Google's knee-jerk reaction that pruning content is a bad thing and how you go about thinking about legacy content on the sites of the clients that you, especially the new clients that you get. You know, let's say you have a client, you used to get a new client, they've got 2,000 pages of content. How do you think about that? Okay, so starting point here is, and there's some nuance to all of this, so before you go and delete all your old content, I, you look, I love the Google PR people. I don't think that they're trying to obfuscate anything. I don't think they're trying to intentionally mislead us. You know, think about it. There's this algorithm operating in the wild. And then there's these people that are, their job is to talk about what Google's trying to do. And those two things are not always exactly lined up, as we know, as we've talked about. And um, I'm sure we'll reference this in the show notes. You know, you've talked extensively about pruning underperforming content. That's not exactly what they're talking about here, which I think you, you can talk more about your process there. What they're talking about here is, like CNET said, we're killing old content because it's going to help us be fresher with Google. And I think to that specific thing, I think Google's PR people are probably aligned with what the engine's trying to do. I don't think that Google's like, we're trying to de-index all old content. And in fact, there's reasons even beyond Google that I think that the people at Google would be from a PR position in terms of like the integrity of the internet, you don't want people deleting old content. And a lot of that content also helps inform the algorithm. That being said, the nuance that I'll let you extrapolate on, making decisions about getting rid of or combining, um, you know, redirecting content and content strategy works really, really, really well. And so, you know, if you're like right now, you read this stuff and you're like, I'm going to delete all my old blog posts before 2022 because they're old. That's wrong. But if you're like, you know, hey, I'm going to go analyze pages that haven't received a visit in, you know, that are indexed and haven't received a visit in two years or, you know, rethink that kind of stuff and, and think about those that are hurting your organic click through rate. Of course, we know that that stuff works. Conrad, you ever see that work before? Absolutely 100% this works. And this goes way back, and maybe I can even find them. We'll throw them in the show notes. I've written multiple posts, I believe they're on Search Engine Land, about reducing page count and actually seeing an increase in traffic. And I think this is especially true in legal because of two reasons. Number one, you guys have listened to the SEO people tell you that you just need to write more content, right? And you guys ask the agencies for You know, I want 12 articles a week for the next 52 weeks and long tail, blah, blah, blah. And so there's so much content that you have out there that is irrelevant, not going to rank, and frankly, pretty low quality if you're barfing out, you know, 100 pieces of content a year, right? That's one every three days. Like, that's that's a lot of content. Five years in, you've got a, a, a massive site. 
And so we know Google rewards sites that do that, right? We know it, we've seen it. And, and I think that's the other takeaway from all of this. And again, not to cast aspersions at the spokespeople for Google, but trust your own data, run your own experiments, see yes. what happens on your own site, because it doesn't always line up. A lot of times it doesn't line up with what Google's trying to do. And again, there's a line, right? There's things you can do that are like extremely manipulative of the algorithm today. And, you know, Google's gotten better at combating a variety of those things. But I think, you know, this is one that Conrad and I are, are pretty tightly aligned upon. The pages that exist on your site, the internal link structure of your site, the pages that are indexed, how they're performing in search makes a, a big difference. Site architecture can make a big difference in how your pages rank. And so therefore, you know, again, we're, we're, we see it firsthand. So, you know, if you've got people on your team, people in house, or you're managing your own site, try to do some consolidation, go listen to what Conrad talked about, about his process and see what happens. That's the best way to know if it's working for you or not. So I will, you know, to make this super, super concrete for you, dear listener, if you have a post from 2017 about Frank Murphy received the Super Lawyers Award of 2000, here we go, I'm back to Super Lawyers. <laughs> I don't mean to pick on Super Lawyers. Well, that's going to be a lot of content to delete because it it's been every year for the last 30 that's right. years. So this is exactly the problem. You guys have been, oh, well, we have to post some content. Oh, what are we going to post this week? Oh, Frank won Super Lawyers. Yay. Now you post that blog post about Frank winning Super Lawyers. There's nothing interesting or unique, and maybe there's three or four sentences by the way, no one cares in 2023 about Frank in 2017. And also, Frank moved on to a different law firm that he now works for the guy across the street who you hate as a competitor. Why do you have that piece of content up there? And so Guy's point of analyze this, I'm going to read, I'm going to again read the internal memo from CNET because it, it outlines exactly how I think you should go about thinking about your own content map. Removing content from the site is not a decision we take lightly, okay? So it's not like go back to, you know, every old post that's more than 24 months old and killing it. Our teams analyze many data points to determine whether there are pages on CNET that are not currently serving a meaningful audience. These metrics include, important here, if you want to do your own legacy content analysis, this is coming right out of CNET, and I agree with this, these metrics include page views, backlink profiles and the amount of time that has passed since the last update, right? So they're, they're looking at whether we have a whole bunch of crap on their site that no one's reading and there's no value in. And so I 100% endorse that. And the other thing that you mentioned, Guy, is combining things. So what do you do with the old content? There is a very simplistic approach to this and it's very easy to remember. Legacy content strategy looks like this. You do the analysis and then at the page level, and by the way, this is painful and we have clients who spend lots and lots of money with us to do this for them. Your answer for every single page is do we kill it? In the example of, a, you know, hey, we sponsored the turkey trot in 2005. No one cares. Do you kill it? Do you combine it? So super lawyers, instead of your 27 blog posts about Frank winning super lawyers for the last 27 years, turn the, that into one page about your super lawyers awards, right? So you can take all of your super lawyers awards and put it into a single page. Or do you keep it? Is it working, right? So kill, keep, combine, look at the data and let that make your decision. That is my perspective on legacy content. I fundamentally disagree with what Google's saying, especially in the legal world, especially if you've been in an aggressive SEO game. Done.
when we come back, we're going to do a quick review and then we're going to draw two more people into our dream team. Well, it's that time of the show where we pat ourselves on the back and not to belabor our point of earlier, but we're very grateful for our sponsors and very grateful for this very nice comment from CallRail CMO, Masami Middleton. Wait, are we pandering to CallRail again today? Yeah, this, I, this, you must have written this uh, script today. I don't know how this happened, but congrats, Guy and Conrad. Really enjoyed your recent marketing Dream Team episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you, of course, for sponsoring. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, if you've got ideas for topics, you got questions at your firm, you can, I know my uh, Twitter direct messages are open, so feel free to message me. Not too worried about the floodgates opening there. Check us out, Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. We're even on threads because let's just be everywhere. But thanks for listening and uh, hope to see you on the socials. Speaking of Dream Team, not coincidentally, people like those topics. And so we're going to round out with round three, drafting our marketing dream team as a contextual note for those that just landed here. Conrad and I were fortunate enough to present together at last year's ABA Tech Show. And we talked about building your dream team. And so we've been covering different roles on the show that we think are essential to have in marketing your law firm. And today we're going to start with one of Conrad's favorites, the face. The face. And the reason we call this the face is the word is personality, not businessality. I'm not sure that sounds as good as it sounds now that I'm saying it instead of reading Businessality. It right was that your thesis? My point is, it is much easier to market an individual with personality and build affinity and awareness around a person than it is to build it around a business. And I'm not saying that there's not value in building affinity towards a business, but those businesses where they're based on a non-personal brand have a tougher road to hope, simply. And so I love having a face of the firm who is regularly involved in both the marketing, but also the positioning. And the positioning, like it's easy to build a position around an individual instead of an entity. And I have a bunch of clients that look very much like this, but we can use John Morgan or Morgan & Morgan to talk about this. People are just as familiar, if not more familiar with John Morgan than they are with the firm Morgan & Morgan. And it's not because John spends a lot of time in the courtroom. It's because it is easier to build a business around that individual. And so I would really encourage all of you thinking about putting a face to the firm because it's so much easier to build that affinity for an individual. And it has to be consistent. You have to have the right person who's willing to do this. We have a bunch of CEO lawyers who I would suggest are somewhat reluctantly dragged into being the face, but it's their name on the door, right? And that is the easiest way to have a face of a law firm. So for me, putting a face, putting a person behind the in front of the business is the easiest way to build out affinity for that business. Key? So when framed like that, I tend to agree. 
Um, you know, we talked in the pre-show, you know, my pushback was on trade names and brand and um, that kind of stuff. And I do think it's easier. You know, I think for a lot of our listeners, if you're a solo, you know, and we have this conversation all the time, lawyers call us up, you guys do logos, you know, you want to do like trade name stuff. And like, of course, like we'll have those conversations, but I'm always like, you know, that's kind of an afterthought. And, you know, I say that people are going to be jumping up and down. I spent all this money on a logo, but to Conrad's point, as the saying goes, clients hire lawyers, not law firms. Now there are exceptions to that. And the one that I used in the pre-show is Michigan auto law, you know, and Steve Gerson, who's a, a personal friend, you know, he is the face of the firm. And so, you know, that's the other thing I think about with this is it's not, um, it's not an either or, you know, it's not, they're not uh, mutually exclusive having a brand and having a face, I think. But there are limitations if you're all in on the face. And so it's sure. definitely easier, I think, I think you're to the, especially the affinity stuff, right? People are going to ask, you know, they ask Steve to come to do a speaking event. They're not asking, send a Michigan auto law representative, right? Uh, and right. so that's really, really important. I, I agree. And obviously it's on our team. I just think I want to be careful that we don't say that and people are like, oh, I have to be the brand. Like that's the only way to do it. Because the answer is that is no. But I do think for most listeners, the easier way and probably the right way for them is to be the face of their firm. Or if that's not you, and this goes back to the, you know some of these conversations we've had in previous rounds of the marketing team, somebody on the team has to be that. And so, you know, if that's going to be that person better be a partner because otherwise they're going to take their face with them when they leave. That is really important, right? Like you're building an asset around an individual and you see that even with the, we talked about in the context of practitioner pages on Google business profiles, right? So you got an associate who's doing volume, getting a lot of positive reviews. They want to take that with them. If they leave firms, like they've created an asset, like put that in your employer agreements because that's got a lot of value. A lot of value. All right, Key, who's on your team? Who are you drafting? I'm going with the guest. Be their guest. Be their guest. Put their audience to the test. You know, and we were thinking about this in the, uh, as we were laughing about our prior silliness with Paul Faust, but lawyers that are guests on other podcasts, you know, you're a guest at an event, you're a speaking guest. Gosh, that's powerful. Local level, you know, guest speaker at your local high school, guest speaker at, you know, local business organization events. But I think in the in media land, you're talking about podcasts. You know, we've talked about this before, too. It's almost like the unintentional guest. But Jay Stephanie in Chicago, he does these, you know, how we use Filevine or how we use software at our firm. And, you know, he's been asked to be a guest at the Filevine conference for that, you know, very reason. And so that's a great way to, you know, say, well, you know, what's the direct response marketing of that? And it's like, no, but it's all the relationships, the referral relationships, the industry recognition that he's got from, you know, being a guest. So honestly, as I was reflecting on this, this is like one of the more important ones to me. Tapping into other people's established audiences. Wow. Let me flip this and ask you the question. Softball yeah. here. Softball. Hey, Gee, I want to start a podcast to market my law firm. Right? By the way, I know podcasting is so successful for you, Gee. I want to be just like you. I'm going to start huh. my my podcast. What's your advice, dear lawyer? Uh, are you any good? Let me let me hear <laughs> what you got. 
So I would say if you're serious, you know, the serious answer is it's going to take some work. This isn't a turn it around, but forget about your podcast to market your law firm. Do a podcast is something that overlaps with some affinity audience that you're passionate about, right? This is the whole point. I've seen some lawyers do a pretty good job of like covering their local community, almost like a local news, but like a local news with like a legal bend. That's an idea. But, you know, I also, there's lawyers that do like lawyer ones, right? So there's trial lawyer nation. There are a bunch of other where they're not talking necessarily just about like, you know, their practice or, you know, their subject area. And then I would say, if you're going to do that, if this is the route you want to go, how are you going to get an audience? Go be a guest on one of those podcasts, right? My read is that you are going to be so much more successful and it is going to take such less time to become that guest on other podcasts. It is, there is years and years and lots of effort put into building an audience and yes, it's great to have your own audience, but that investment is massive, right? Yeah. Minute per minute as a resource, because that was a good way to frame it. Every minute you spend recording your own podcast is like an hour spent being a guest somewhere else, right? Because it's yeah. like no one's listening to your podcast and it's taking you an hour to record it. Over here, especially if you get on a podcast that's like super popular in your local community or the community that you serve. <laughs> I mean, that's way more valuable, astronomically more valuable. All right. A little foreshadowing. You may hear Guy and Conrad somewhere else on the interwebs in the near future. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, it's news to me. It is not news to you. Oh. I just made you change your flight because I booked it on the same day as my 20th uh, anniversary. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> I, think we, I think that opportunity has passed us by. You do? <laughs> hey, we shall see. My goal is to stay married above all else. That is, that's an excellent goal. <laughs> so Conrad, what is the big takeaway for these two roles at your law firm? So I go back to my earliest days of legal directories and the notion that people hire lawyers and not law firms. It is about the individual, right? And it is much less about the firm. And so that ties deeply into why it is so much easier to market a person, because that's who people hire, than a firm. And with that, dear listener, thank you for dropping in to this episode of Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. As we always say, please do drop us a comment. I think it's been a couple months. We haven't had a comment since March, so we're looking for comments. If you hated it, loved it, indifferent, I think you can drop an emoji in Apple reviews. Check us out on the socials. Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. I'm trying to have a good time. So we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, Conrad and Gee, farewell. Thank you for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. If you'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Follow Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That's it. 
Oh, just kidding. I'm in the wrong spot. <laughs> Gee, throw to music. I love when you f*** it up. <laughs> ah! If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.